I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and today we have a breaking news edition of Fifth Emission. There is finally a long-awaited verdict in the trial of two men accused in the death of 36 people at the Ghost Ship Warehouse in 2016. I'm going to speak with Megan Casty, one of our crime reporters who has covered the entirety of the trial, and we'll discuss what happens next with the defendants, the scene inside the courtroom, and the trouble the court had with the jury during deliberations. That's coming up next on Fifth and Mission. Megan Cassidy, thank you for being with us, um, especially as you have a story that is probably being edited right now. I think it is. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. So why? Yeah, thanks for having me. Why don't you catch us up on what the verdict was for each of the defendants in the ghost ship trial? Sure. Um, yeah, it was. We've been, you know, talking about this for months now. What we think is going to happen, and I think everybody was still surprised. Um, so Max Harris, he was one of the tenants of the warehouse, kind of described as the right hand man of uh, Derek Almina. He was acquitted on all charges, so 36 counts of not guilty. Um, as soon as they read off those char- or those uh, acquittals, he walked out of the courtroom, so did his attorneys. Um, the harder one, then, was Derek Almena. Um, Derek Almena was, um, there was a hung jury. Um, the jury was hopelessly deadlocked. Uh, ten people, ten of the jurors, voted uh, in favor of guilty, and two said not guilty. Now, this jury has been deliberating for quite a while. You've been outside waiting for this to happen for for a number of weeks now. How how long has it been since they closed the case and sent it to the jury? So it's been over a month now. I, I think it was um, July 31st. Um, and then um, there, there's actually there's there's jury number one and then jury number two. Um, the first set of jurors uh, deliberated for 10 days. And then on the 10th day, there were some mumblings that something weird was happening. And we found out that uh, three jurors were accused of misconduct and they were dismissed. That meant that the case had to, uh, compl- I'm sorry, deliberations had to completely restart with three alternates. And then they deliberated for well, one day the first day, but just for like half an hour. And then uh, so this was day number six of their deliberations. So with the two different jurors, juries, uh, 16 days. Excellent. So I want to get back to the juror misconduct issues in a little bit. But tell us first, you were inside the courtroom when the verdict was announced. What was the scene uh, I assume that a lot of victims' family members were there. They were, yeah. They were allowed in first, and then the media. Um, it, it was chaos getting into the courtroom in the first place. And uh, and actually, one, um, there was some massive confusion right at the beginning because um, the jury handed in their envelope that was supposed to have the two verdicts there, and it was missing one verdict. And so we really didn't know what happened. The jury got sent back to continue deliberating. Everybody in the courtroom is just wondering what's happening. Nobody has any answers. And then just within a couple minutes, jury comes back out, and then they're ready to read. So the first one is Max Harris. I think that he, um, I think most people would agree that he was by far uh, the the more sympathetic defendant of the two. Um, he was, like I said, he was the the right-hand man uh, of Derek. He never really made any decisions about 
what to do to make the warehouse safe. He just kind of maybe helped plan the party, and he was there when the fire broke out. Um, so when when the um, court clerk started reading the um, started reading the verdicts, uh, it was as pretty much as soon as you as uh, they said not guilty for the first one, we knew it was going to be not guilty for all 36. Um, so it's 36 charges of involuntary manslaughter. And how did he, how did he react to that? He, 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 there wasn't much reaction at all. He, um, he looked straightforward, um, the, pretty much the whole time as the, uh, as the verdicts were still being read, um, the family uh, over off to the side really seemed just concentrated on hearing every single one. Most of them, they weren't, there were no tears yet. Um, there were a few that did gasp at it, at the decision, a few that started crying. But I think that for for most people, Derek Almeida was the main event. And what happened when the when it became clear that it was a hung jury on the charges against him? Um, gasps all over the courtroom. Um, and at that point, people did start crying some more. Um, and uh, Judge Trina Thompson asked whether the jury, uh, how they split, and they said that it was it was ten to two. Um, she declared that it was a uh, that the jury was hopelessly deadlocked and declared a mistrial. So each of the defendants in this case, they faced almost forty years in prison. How long how, they've been in custody since uh, since they were arrested? Is that right? Yes. So they've already been in jail. For for how long? About two years. They yeah. were they were arrested in mid uh, twenty seventeen. And and you said Harris was allowed to go free immediately after that. Well, he walked out of the courtroom immediately after that, before even hearing um, Almena's verdict or, or non verdict, I should say. Um, but we are receiving word that he should be freed tonight from Santa Rita Jail. And what happens to Derek Almena now? It's it's pretty unclear. Um, the DA has not made a statement yet on whether they will retry. However, the defense attorneys think that it's almost for sure that they will, um, pretty much because of the way that the jury split. I think if it was the other way around, most people voted to acquit, it may be a different story. But Tony Sarah, um, Derek Almina's main defense attorney, um, was speaking afterwards as though, this, this is a done deal. Um, and he feels confident that next time he's going to get um, another mistrial at the very least, if not an acquittal. So refresh us. Let's go back to what happened that fateful night at the ghost ship warehouse. What happened at the music show and what were the various theories that the prosecution and the defense put forward during the trial? Sure. Um, First, to start off with, I think you have to go at least to talk about Derek's role in it. You have to go um, a few years back when he first uh, acquired the warehouse and started leasing it out to um, to tenants that weren't supposed to be there. The space was only zoned for uh, to be a warehouse, essentially for storage. Um, he illegally allowed uh, as many as twenty five people to live there. And then also didn't do the things that you would need to do to make it legal for people to live there. So didn't install sprinkler systems, um, illuminated exit signs. Um, I think there there was really only only like one exit door 
Um, there were no fire fire alarms. There were a few fire extinguishers, but really, what prosecutor said it was that he essentially uh, created a fire trap. And so that was that was going on years before. Uh, there was testimony that he even scoffed at suggestions to make the space safer. Um, so Almena, on the night of the fire, he wasn't even there. So his role all depend it was all hinging on what he did before then. Uh, Max Harris, uh, the prosecutors described him as one of the, or if not the main planner of, of the of the party. It was an electronic music show. There were a lot of DJs there. Um, we we've heard, heard estimates that about eighty to a hundred people showed up. Um, Max was stamping hands and taking donations of about ten dollars, and then uh, allowed you know dozens of people to pack into this space. Um, when the fire started, we had a lot of witnesses say that really it was within a matter of moments that they first smelled even a whiff of smoke and then just full-blown inferno around them. And uh, when they were trying to get out, a lot of, most of the people at the warehouse uh, were not tenants. They were partygoers. They were on the second floor. They didn't realize that there was a window or any second exit, so they formed a bottleneck trying to get back down one makeshift flight of stairs, and um, a lot of them perished upstairs. What were the various theories about how this started? The So it's actually kind of interesting. The prosecutors didn't really dwell on that. The prosecutor's theory is that it doesn't matter how it started. What matters is that you created this environment that made anything, any kind of a fire, deadly. Um, Prior to the trial, we got into that a little bit more um, during during like pretrial testimony. Um, one of the main theories is was, was uh, that it was an electrical issue. Um, one of the fire investigators actually said that during a pre- preliminary hearing. Um, now, if you ask the defense attorneys, they would also agree that there that nobody knows exactly how it started. But they would push forth evidence that, or I should say witness testimony, that suggests that it could have been ignited by arsonists. And there were at least three witnesses that uh, their, their testimony kind of lent somewhat credibility to that theory. One of the subplots, I think, of this whole case has been the the city's underground warehouse scene, which was it has been historically a place for a lot of artists. It's also been a place where you could find cheap housing among these artists. The city, right after this fire, was really uh, pressured to crack down on some of this illegal housing arrangements. What is happening with that now? Um, so that didn't really play much of a role in the trial, actually. Um, the the defense wanted um, Mayor Libby Schaaf to testify. Um, the judge ruled against that. Um, what actually ended up, what was really on trial more was the, uh, the firefighters' decisions on both the night of the fire and um, inspectors and uh, what they did um, when they had viewed the warehouse um, in the months and the years prior to the December 2nd, 2016 fire. So one of the things that the, the trial really um, drove home was uh, testimony of fire officials who had 
gone to the warehouse during an arson investigation in September 2014, uh, viewed the space, talked to the tenants, and really did nothing about it And um, afterwards. There was one fire captain, his name is George Freeland, who said he even, uh, that he did tour the warehouse, he even filed a report afterwards um, that maybe should have triggered an inspection, but that never happened. And after after this whole trial and, and all the theories uh, were presented to the jurors and, and, it, and it came back that there was a hung jury and an acquittal, did the jurors talk to the media afterwards? Because sometimes, I don't know if everybody knows, but sometimes the jurors do speak to the media about um, the deliberations, but also this has been such an odd one in terms of uh, the finding of juror misconduct. Did anyone address that? Right. Uh, no, they snuck out. Um, I, I know that there were at least a few reporters, myself included, that were um, just kind of doing laps around the courthouse and on the connecting buildings, seeing if any of them were going to be sneaking out somewhere. Still, still to this moment, I have no idea how they got out of here. <laughs> Maybe they have a secret, a secret passage for the jurors. I think so. I think they must have gotten out of a garage or something. Well, I mean, I think you can understand. I, I think a lot of people can sympathize with why somebody who's put on a trial that has been this long and has been this um, emotional, why they might not feel comfortable addressing the media right afterwards. Oh, sure, sure. And you know, it's not just the media too. Um, I talked to defense attorneys. They said that they have not had a chance to talk to jurors yet. Um, and at least two family members, the two that showed up the most often, um, said that jurors did not want to talk to them. Will we ever find out what happened with those instances of juror misconduct? I have actually a good answer for you for that. Yes, we found out today um, from Tony Sarah who said that he believed that there is no more gag order now that the now that the trial is over. Um, he was somewhat vague about it, but we have a lot more of an idea now. What he said happened was one of the jurors had an acquaintance that uh, was a firefighter, and that she had talked to the firefighter. Firefighter told her that after that arson fire in 2014, it should have been, and if, firefighters went through the warehouse, it should have been required that somebody files a report and that then an inspection would follow thereafter. That juror, because she received information that was extraneous to what she heard in trial, um, that's why she ended up getting kicked off. She also ended up sharing that with other jurors. One juror uh, said that, she, that it had um, swayed her opinion one way or the other, um, and that's why she was booted. The third juror, um, Tony Sarah, was kind of unclear about, but, it, but we have a much clearer idea on uh, what happened to those two. Interesting. So the city's role in these warehouses does seem to, like it may have played at least a small part, some part, in the deliberations inappropriately. Definitely. Definitely. And... Um, George Freeland, the um, the captain who had toured the warehouse, um, the jury actually asked for a readback of his testimony a couple days ago. Interesting. What was the most emotional part of this trial for you covering it, Megan? Because you were there every day, a long trial. Um, you've no doubt seen the family members of the victims. What was what was what stands out as in your mind as the most emotional part? Um, for me, it was the last text um, that some family members got. Um, gosh, I, I could probably tear up right now. Um, 
One was, you know, I love you. I'm going to die now. I think that was to a mother. Um, another one just wrote fire. Um, and, yeah, they were very brief moments in, in the trial, and they, they came at the beginning, but, um, you know, they are just heart-wrenching. Yeah. Well, Megan, thank you so much for your coverage, and thanks for um, chatting with us in between, your, in, in between your edits tonight. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you to Megan Cassidy for being with me today. Thank you to King Kaufman for producing this episode. And thanks to all of you who are listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.